is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part two with Michael Radar, we continue the conversation on his journey to joining Cirque de Soleil. We also talk about taste and his definition of his own taste, which I think is really mind opening. So I hope you enjoy this part two with Michael Rader. How did you how did you join Cirque de Soleil? What was the journey to that position? This story is is fantastic. So I knew moving to New York, my long term goal was always that I wanted to I wanted to be an artistic director or be a director, be, you know, run a run a company. And while my undergrad degree is in is in musical theater and performance, and I moved to New York, I probably spent the first 10 years or so just sort of focusing on directing. I mean, sorry, on performing. I knew that that was my long-term goal. And so after about um, eight or 10 years of doing just that, I really started to, to invest in looking for making that change into directing or artistic directing. And, um, and one day as I was, you know, scanning the job boards, um, I think it was on Playbill, an ad came up for an artistic director position at Cirque. And I read the advertisement and it was, you know, it was basically, you know, managing the artistic side of, of, um, of the, you know, one of their tours, one of their massive, massive, you know, international tours. Mm. And it, the, when I applied for this job, it was right when Cirque was, um, they were for the first time integrating storylines to their shows. So prior to my involvement with them, they had had, you know, their shows were basically just massive spectacles um, mm -hmm. without any real attempt of a through line of a storyline. So they were actively looking for people who were involved in the theater communities uh, or had a background in storytelling um, that was, um, you know, that had a, that was plot driven. Mm -hmm. And so they, I think, you know, they were seeking people in the New York theater community. Um, and they, prior to that too, they had been very protective about hiring their senior artistic staffs from like the, the Toronto communities. They were very protective of, of, you know, and, and rightly so proud of being, um, uh, of their, their Canadian roots. Um, but they had advertised this position and I thought, you know, what do I have to lose? I'll, I'll I will apply for it. And I applied and maybe about six weeks later, I got what I thought was like a form email back from Cirque. And it said, hey, we're going to be in New York at this hotel on this date, and we would love to meet you and come on by. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to go and there's going to be 500 other people there. And, uh, you know, I'm young and it's a waste of time. And I kind of forgot about it. And that morning I got up and I had an audition for something that was like a rock. I remember it was like a rock musical. So I was dressed in like jeans, <laughs> shirt. And I remember going down to the old Chelsea studios and I, and I had my uh, uh, audition and I finished really early. And I, I and I remember looking at my uh, calendar and be like, Oh, there was that Cirque thing. Uh, I guess I could just like sort of swing by and my, and I remember thinking in my mind, like, it's going to be like this in like huge industrial thing. And there's going to be, you know, like in this, like, it's going to be like at the Javits center. And I walked over to the hotel and it was this boutique hotel in Chelsea. And I walked in and I said, Hey, I'm here for Cirque thinking I'd be ushered into 
a huge boardroom or conference room, like with like tons of people. And they took me upstairs and there was a woman sitting at the top of the stairs. And I said, hey, I'm I'm uh, I'm here for uh, Cirque. And she said, oh, um, and you're, what's your name? And I said, my name. And she said, oh yeah, Michael, uh, just take a seat. Uh, let me let them know you're here. <clears throat> and I started to panic. I thought, oh God, this is not at all what I envisioned. And the senior yeah. artistic director for Cirque came out uh, and introduced herself to me and um, ushered me into a room where it was just me and her. And, um, I, you know, I'm thinking, oh my God, I've totally blown this. Like, this is really bad. Um, we sit down and she said, she said, you know, I, I have your digital copy of your resume. Could I have a, you know, a paper copy? Like we asked you to bring in that infamous form email I thought I got. And I said, um, no, you can't, you can't. I don't, you know, I don't have, I actually don't have uh, a paper copy. I'm so sorry. And here I am dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. And I just sort of have literally nothing to lose at this point. Um, and so I think because of that, the pressure was kind of off for the interview. And we just sort of had a conversation. And, um, you know, after it was done, um, uh, I left thinking, well, I just really screwed that up. Uh, but I got a phone call later from it, later in the day from the, the senior artistic director. And she said, Hey, we would like, we, they were doing a show at Madison square garden at that point in time. She said, I'd like you to come see the show, um, and hear your thoughts on it. And, uh, we'll go to like dinner afterwards or something. And, and then she said, and if I can just give you one piece of advice. And I said, Oh my gosh, you know, of course, of course she said, um, you might want to dress different, differently. <laughs> and I, I remember going out, you know, to like uh, H&M or something that night. Like, okay, I got to buy like a nice shirt and like, um, and, you know, invest in this. And I ended up, it was so funny because then I went to the show and we, we at that point, we, I was building a rapport with her and a couple more interviews in, I actually told her the story. I said, I have to tell you this really funny story about why I was dressed that way and why I didn't have a resume. And um anyway so i ended up getting the job and it was an unbelievable unbelievable experience i mean when when i was the year i was working for them was cirque's uh, billion dollar year so it was like the heyday of cirque and the show that i was working on was verakai which was at that point in time was doing a european tour mm -hmm. so i got to i joined the tour um I joined the tour. Oh, in Amsterdam. Um, and it was, you know, coming from like the American theater model of, uh, at that point in time, most of my experience had been in the nonprofit sector, a little bit of commercial theater, but walking into a entertainment organization of that size um, was, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. I mean, I had never seen that amount of money invested in our art form and also at done at such a high, high level and with such integrity. And they, I think one of the, the, the greatest things I learned from Cirque was they treated us so exceptionally well. I mean, every single person involved in that show um, was treated so, so, so well. I mean, they invested in their family um, and it, it paid off remarkably. I mean, they, mm. everyone was incredibly loyal, was, 
um, invested in the product, invested in the in the show, um, and had a lot of pride for what for what they were doing in their art form. And you know, you have to imagine too the the makeup of their shows. I mean, I think we had seven different languages that were being spoken. You know, in, in amongst the company, and so many backgrounds. And, you know, you learn very quickly about sensitivity to different cultures and different, um, you know, you know, practices as artists. And um, it was it was a it was a really, really remarkable uh, learning experience. I mean, just navigating as as sort of the 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 head of uh, all things artistic Mm. of, of navigating different backgrounds, navigating different um you know, learning how to communicate to, you know, some people on the tour really di- didn't speak English. And and as you're trying to, you know, say to 12, <laughs> I remember my very first rehearsal after watching the show and they, they had asked me to like sort of um, bring some energy back to the finale. And I, I had called this rehearsal with the whole company and there were there were like 12 or 15 Georgian dancers, like from the country of these men from Georgia who do these unbelievably like, uh, like jump in the air and spin, 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 and like land on their knees. And like, that's, it was like this very masculine, like, like, like strong kind of dance. And um, I remember, I remember um, asking the whole company, I was like, okay, guys. So in the finale, like, we need more like we need to be like more invested in like it ended like kind of like with this marriage kind of ceremony and i was like being excited about the marriage and like and uh trying to get these like hyper masculine men to be like uh you know like invested in what was happening on stage where you know their whole background is sort of like as gymnasts and like it's it was um it was a re- really really great learning experience and um my God, I mean, I just, I learned the value of, 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 um, of making your, the artist and your community in your show and, and everybody the, from, from the, you know, the production staff to the front of house to it, taking care of them and making them feel you know, as, as valued members of your story and your community. And um, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. You, you know, you bring up the how everyone felt very valued and they were taken care of. Are we speaking on like um, just like f- financial incentives or were there certain models or behaviors in the rehearsal process that affected that feeling, you know, through how you're treated? Yeah, I think I mean, both, really. Okay. I mean, they. Um, it's, you know, let me give you an example, like there was. um we had a we had a gentleman in the show who um, got very severely injured uh, outside of the production, not not in the show. Actually, it was it was um, it was um, after the show one night, and um, the producers he the producers flew his wife out um, uh, to the production, and his career basically was over. I mean, he was um, not to get you know, to go down this rabbit hole, but he was, you know, he was, he, he was paralyzed. And uh, as someone who had had a career as, you know, in, as a, essentially a gymnast and um, you know, this was uh, obviously devastating. He had, he, his wife had um, was pregnant with a new child. They were a young couple and Cirque paid for um, 
all of his medical expenses continued for and and paid for his um wife to get an apartment where we were and stay there for a year um and this was outside of work i mean this was not the responsibility of the company but hmm. they were so invested in their artists that that they um they didn't even they it wasn't even something they thought about it was just yeah we're gonna we're gonna do this we're gonna help um and that was just sort of the mo of the company on all all aspects you know they they were very fortunate at that point in time with with how successful the company was the organization was mm. and they invested it back in in their people and um you know that is that is something that's it's rare in the United States, I think, in the nonprofit sector anyways, because I think so many theaters in our country are, at the end of the day, just trying to keep their doors open, right? We are, you know, we're in a position um, where, especially coming out of the pandemic, where theaters are, you know, the entertainment industry is struggling to to get back to sort of, or to redefine itself or get back to a, um, you know, a place where we feel more stable, but to be an organization that actually had a surplus like that and be able to, and, and then invest it back in their, um, in their for workforce was, was, I mean, I saw the, I saw, you know, firsthand how, how positive of an impact that was on, on the, on the company. Hmm. How through all of these life experiences to date, how has your taste evolved how's my taste evolved I, I mean i still think i'm that 10 year old boy in ohio who just is is you know finds this all very very magical mm. uh, and um of course things get refined and we have um we're influenced by the uh the things we see and um but you know i guess for me at the end of the day it's like i'm always looking for that that magic that 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 feeling of um wonder or um something that you know moves you or or shifts something in you and um that to me is paramount to why we do this or why I do this and feeling that kind of response, either when I'm seeing something or creating something um, has always been the core of, of what excites me about our industry. Um, the potential for eliciting change in something or someone or a new perspective or, um, joy or excitement i mean that that little flame inside you that when you see something that that um ignites is is really has always for me been been the key and so you know you while i guess taste may shift a little bit it that's that's always fundamental that's always been fundamental to me and following um the paths that take me towards those feelings is where i i try to keep going Hmm. Is that reminding myself of that? Yeah, yeah. Is there a common piece of incorrect advice that you hear in life or in the uh, theater industry? 
common piece of incorrect advice? Um, and oh gosh, let me think. I, I, it's not necessarily a common piece of incorrect advice, but what I will say is, I think it's very difficult, well, sometimes difficult in our community to just be yourself, right? Like we are told you have to look a certain way, you have to sound a certain way, you have to be a certain way. And and, and consistently the people that I, that I, that I gravitate towards in our industry, whether it's an actor, a designer, um, a colleague, are people who are inevitably comfortable just being themselves. Um, and, you know, I've, as a director sitting in the audition room, I can tell when someone walks in the room and they are, not not genuine or not sincere and i don't even mean in a and i don't even mean that in a um as if they're doing it in an intentional way but you can i i feel like i can tell read the energy of someone who walks in and just isn't um confident or isn't um comfortable in their own skin and i and that to me is um Indicative, I think, in the most part of people trying to be something that the industry has has asked them to be and is, is almost always off-putting. And I think that just trusting that you are good enough and trusting that um, what you have to bring or what you have to offer is unlike anything that anybody else can bring. And that, for me, has been... Um, I wish we could all embrace that more. Um, there's room for everybody in this in this industry, and um, not conforming to. Um, I mean, we're seeing this especially as we come out of the pandemic, but not conforming to um, you know constraints of of having to be a certain way or a certain type or a certain look. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had people coming into a room and I would have thought, oh my God, I never thought of her for that before. I never thought of him for that role. Um, and they're wonderful. I mean, they, it's it's thinking outside the box. And um, so that that's for me has been, I, I would encourage, you know, I all, uh, encourage people just to be themselves, to not have to fit into boxes, to not have to fit into um, constraints that are defined by our, by the industry or, or, or even outside the industry that just, um, you know, be yourself, trust, trust your, trust that you're good enough. Yeah. That's a really great answer. Yeah. The, the, whenever you get a, a real slice of humanity <laughs> from a writer, from a performer, from a director, from, when you get that, it's like, ah, something moves, something shifts, like you said. And that's what, you know, that's the taste, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's that's key for me. That's that's like bringing it back. That's like the, the when the flame ignites. It's like you feel that like genuine energy in the room. Mm. Um, and that I think that that is conducive to, to connection. 
and I and I mean that from like an audience to actor standpoint, and I also just mean from like uh, on a colleague standpoint. Like, I, I really believe that collaboration in this industry is is really um, one of the greatest aspects of our uh, art form. I I had a <laughs> I, I, I learned this lesson uh, a little too late, I would say, because, you know, growing up doing these driveway productions or like my self-producing in college and, you know, I was, you know, the guy who was like, I'm going to direct, I'm going to write all the lighting cues, I'm going to design the sound, I'm going to like, you know, it was like this, um, you know, like I was controlling everything. And I remember in, I think it was probably grad school, having like the first experience working like with a full design team and like and and learning like learning the lesson of like oh yeah like uh, from like a design standpoint perspective of like i never would have thought of that you know and this person is bringing like this the scenic designer is bringing an idea that i never would have thought of and uh, and um so that's you know having those those genuine collaborative relationships where you where you can be intimate with someone uh, and collaborative, um, the more genuine you can be and the more you can you know, be yourself, I find it, and all of those experiences, the greater the product is at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Metaphorically speaking, if you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind? Um, gosh, I mean, right now, without getting on like, you know, too much of a soapbox. I just, I'm so um, disheartened by the, what I feel like is the, um, well, I mean, we use this term all the time, but the divisiveness of our, of our country and even our, you know, our world of, of, I have, you know, I feel like our, our country, our industry is so, um, divided right now and um so, so i i just keep i i just keep like er, like longing for stability and like um in the world i mean and peace and um so if i had to pick like one word i mean it's so generic at this point in time but i would just um I mean, I'm longing for normalcy and peace in the world. And um, I know that sounds generic. It it does sound generic. But um, I, 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 you know, I think it's, it's a conversation that I keep hearing in our industry of like, there is so much angst. There's so much, um, um, we're all struggling to to find our footing coming out of the pandemic, and um, I I just want you know I I I I would just love to inject more love, more love into um, the world, and um, <laughs> so I guess I guess my answer would be peace and love. I mean that sounds like so sort of hippy dippy, um, but um, I hope we can get back to that. I really, I mean, I know it's, it's gonna, it's a long journey and a long path of, um, 
but I hope our country especially can we can get you know get back to to feeling more um, united. Mm. Maybe that's the word. Maybe it's the unite. Um, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love this conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up today? No, thank you for, uh, you know, thank you for having me. I love, I love chatting about our industry and life and unity. <laughs> People of the world, Michael Rader. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.